Welcome to Sophist Security Chat Chat, episode 226, for the 6th of January, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski, here this week with John Shire. Welcome back, John. Thanks, Chet. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well, and to all of our Chet Chat listeners. Sadly, we're not actually in the same city this this week. I'm in Vancouver, and uh, you're in uh, metropolitan Toronto, but I think we have we have similar similar weather, and we got to make sure we always get the weather update in there for our uh, our, our former colleague Graham Cluley. And how are things? Good. You know, it's uh, we we were a little bit blessed with some warm weather in uh, November and December, and now winter has truly <laughs> come and reared its head. So at least we're above zero today, and you know, got to count uh, small miracles, I guess. Well, yeah, and I, you know, it's beginning of January, so of course uh, CES is this week, and and in fact, some of the news that we have in the chat chat this week is related to things, of course, from last week, which was the uh, Chaos Computing Congress in Germany, which happens over the New Year every year, and there's always some interesting hacks and talks and things going on there. But the most dominant thing I think in the headlines this week is uh, the the power outage in the Ukraine being uh, pinned to malware infections. Yeah, it certainly has been making the rounds in the media outlets uh, this week and uh, you know, to varying degrees of sensationalization. I like the way that Paul Ducklin wrote it up on Naked Security, adding a bit of sobriety to the whole issue. Uh, because, you know, this is one of these stories where if you just put the two words malware and power company together, you can come up with some pretty wild and outrageous allegations, I guess, or scenarios. Yeah, I guess that's three words. But I mean, if we put them together, it is a pretty scary prospect, right? I mean, the, the concept that criminals can remotely control the grid and cause uh, mass blackouts or brownouts or whatever might happen is really disturbing, especially considering we know, you know, many people rely on electricity for uh, machines that maintain their health. And, you know, there, there's, there's uh, you know, real public safety risks in power outages, aside from the, the obvious things like traffic lights and other types of uh, electrical things. But I think we should be careful drawing too many conclusions that this is like a a nation state attack. Now, it it may very well be, but uh, my understanding I've seen in the media and certainly some folks I know from the Ukraine have confirmed that it's not unusual for there to be rather large infections in the energy sector in Ukraine and, you know, companies uh, like this. And and so while it, it, it doesn't mean it wasn't uh, a state actor involved. Having malware on a regular basis infecting machines that control your electricity grid is kind of a bad thing, I think. And I mean, it, you know, you you would you could think that that situation could accidentally bring down the grid. Not to mention if somebody really wanted to try. Well, that's just it, isn't it? If you've got all this malware running around in your environment, and as you say, it's connected to some control systems, it's not a very big leap from that to it possibly contributing to some power outages. And, you know, if that's the case, if you do have this malware running rampant in your environment, as, as some have suggested in, in these particular companies, then, you know, you've, you've already got a security fail there that you need to address. And and before we start pointing fingers at, you know, state-sponsored hacking uh, endeavors, maybe we need to look at cleaning up and sanitizing the environment and then trying to understand a little bit better, you know, what did happen. Well, yeah, then I think that's just it. I mean, the, the, in these stories I've been reading, there's allegations of some phishing uh, documents with macro malware coming in, and perhaps the macro is being executed. You know, initial bots being downloaded that have command and control capabilities that then download further uh, destructive malware that's designed to uh, erase event logs, erase backup files, erase entire hard disks. If if it's true that it's a state 
actor, you made it really easy for them if that's the type of malware that's already going on in your environment. And it, you know, and if it's not a state actor, it's possible that other criminals meaning to use your equipment for something um, um, other nefarious purposes might even cause blackouts by accident. Uh, I do like this. I, I did find a story in the Christian Science Monitor that I quite liked that's called Squirrels Are Bigger Threat Than Hackers to U.S. Power Grid. Yes, I remember that outage. <laughs> exactly. We've all had that, those of us that live in North America. And, uh, you know, that is an interesting perspective as well. I mean, hopefully uh, most Western countries are not necessarily struggling with the same thing that the Ukrainians are with these types of infections on their network. But the only lesson I take away from this is just back to the basics again of we need to be not opening documents from unknown people. We need to not be executing files from unknown things. We need to be patching our Flash and our Flash and our Adobe Flash and our Flash. (laughs) So all the Flashes. Yeah, patching all the Flashes basically. And, you know, getting back to basics of just keeping malware off our networks. And if it turns out that there are nation states coming after us, it's going to be a lot easier to potentially discern that activity from other things if we're not already burdened with uh, widespread infections. I agree. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that, you know, this scenario where a company received an email that had an infected file in it and it was run and, you know, dropped a bot or zombie, you know, this is not the sole purview of nation states. This is garden variety criminal activity as well. So, you know, there's just really no way to, to attribute it to any one group at this point in time. Uh, moving along, new Android vulnerabilities, of course, uh, Google's now on a monthly patch cycle, which is uh, really good news uh, for at least their own devices and select partners like Samsung, who've agreed to kind of come along with them. So they they did bundle up the uh, January fixes, which includes a patch for a vulnerability in the media server component, which is, I guess, sort of tangentially related to the stage fright vuln that kind of kicked all of this off in the summer of 2015. I love the idea that Google and at at least some of the major manufacturers are agreeing to, to get these monthly fixes out. But I'm sitting here, it's January 6th, I've got a Nexus 6, and I don't have any updates, and I don't know when I'm going to see them. Yeah, I was just going to argue a little bit with you about saying that, you know, it's good news that these fixes are coming out on a monthly basis. Yes, it's true that Google does prepare them on a monthly basis and make them available. But as you have just pointed out, and I have a Nexus 5 device, uh, and I still don't have the patches either, there's still some lag between when Google makes the patch available and when the patches actually land on your smartphone. So, uh, you know, it's one of these situations, again, where there's a breakdown in the system and it's just not acceptable. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate that criminals haven't been mass targeting Android devices because uh, it, we see, for example, with Flash, which I just mentioned a moment ago, that usually within about 24 to 48 hours, a Flash patch has been reversed by the criminals and is starting to be exploited in exploit kits like Rig and Angler. And so... If the same thing was happening on Android, Google saying on January 4th, hey, here's your January 2016 update. If 48 hours later they started attacking it the way they do Flash, we'd all be in some trouble. It would be interesting to know and see a graph maybe of, of you know which carriers are actually the best at providing these updates for their customers. And you know that alone might uh, provide some of the security conscious people some uh, fodder for you know where they spend their money and, and where they actually you know use their phones on what networks they use their phones. Uh, I, I just think that you know if you're not providing these updates 
easily and immediately, then you're doing a disservice to the people that are using these devices. Uh, you know, yet you, yes, you can get these updates the day they are released, but really you're forced to reflashing your phone, and I, that's not something that I want to undertake. And I'm a you know I'm a tech guy, I'm a security guy, but it's just too much work. Yeah, we'll discuss jailbreaking a little more at the end of the podcast because I think you know there's there's risks and benefits, and that's really kind of the uh, the corner you're backed into when you can't get these updates. You're going, oh no, criminals now know about these vulnerabilities. I want to get the fixes. The Android open source project has the fixes. So if I put that on my phone, arguably it's safer, but I've also broken the security locks off that allow other bad things to happen to my device that I don't want to do. And now what? Right. And obviously in a, in a business environment, we don't want to have those security locks removed. Uh, a lot of folks have opted to look at things like the black phone, which also had its own um, bad news this week, I guess, with uh, a vulnerability being disclosed in that that allowed you to pop a shell. But uh, I'm not sure that that actually bothers me that much. I'm not quite sure why there's so much brouhaha over it. I mean, vulnerability found in smartphone. Yeah, it's one of these stories that bec- I guess because the phone is one of these, uh, you know, it was designed with the express purpose purpose of being as secure as possible from the very beginning. You know, they're, they're trying to sell this as the the most secure smartphone that you could possibly get, you know, from a security and privacy standpoint. So, you know, a little bit of that kind of gets in the way of saying, well, haha, look at look what happened. But, you know, with as with anything touched by a, a human, uh, you know, it, it, there's going to be some vulnerabilities. There's going to be some issues with the software. And, you know, so I, neither of us are surprised that this has happened. Uh, you're probably, you know, you're still in a better position likely having one of these phones and having, you know, some of the other uh, phones that are available out there today. But finding a vulnerability to me, I think is not the end of the world. The sky is not falling on black phone and uh, it's still, it's still a good device. Yeah. I haven't personally evaluated the black phone, but uh, I, I applaud what they're trying to do. And it seems like a pretty solid approach. And the bottom line is anything as complicated as a smartphone. I mean, it's, it's not just a computer in your pocket. It's a computer with dozens of microprocessors and firmwares. And, you know, it's just a really, really tough thing to, to secure properly. Uh, you know, I think they've done about as good a job as you're going to do. And if you're really that worried about uh, the security of your phone, then you probably need to go back to a feature phone. Yeah, they've taken the sort of the Apple model as well, right? Where they they control the, the ecosystem, and it's easier for them to deploy those patches. So I, I agree with you. Now, uh, Internet of Things is always something that's being talked about. In fact, uh, I'll be doing a presentation at this year's RSA conference at our stand. Uh, if you're coming to RSA 2016 at the beginning of March, please stop by and say hi. I'll be discussing securing IoT devices. But there's more bad news, I guess, in that, and of all things, kind of the worst news, which is uh, IoT-based alarm system from Texacom was discovered to uh, have some rather bad security practices, starting with you know plain text communication that can be hijacked. I mean, that's that's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, it really is bad when a security company is, uh, you know, putting these products out with allegedly no security involved. Um, this is a physical security company, but uh, you know, the minute that they put out an app and and allow the uh, the actual base station, if you will, the controller station, to be connected to the internet, they they now become a cybersecurity company or an infosec company, right? So they really need to take these things uh, seriously and, and do the due diligence that is needed for providing these services. Well, back to the power grid, I mean, it's a very similar thing, which is, wow, wouldn't it be convenient if we just added some, you know, IP connectivity to this thing, because now we can monitor it remotely, now we can control it remotely, now we can, uh, you know, be alerted to uh, compromise remotely. And 
yeah, we'll just add a TCP stack. We'll just give it an IP address, and then hey, we can like tell that in, right? Oh, and, you didn't say tell that. Sadly, did we've done that with critical national infrastructure too, though. I mean, that's that's the scary thing, right? This isn't just alarm systems. This is the power grid. There's many of these things where we go, wow, look at all the money we could save. Look how convenient it would be if we just put this on the internet, because it's really easy to just add internet, and adding internet is not good enough, especially when you're talking about things that that have this type of uh, security impact, and, and sadly. This product was certified to a quite high degree of, of, of security for, for, you know, secure installations by the government. And I assume that those uh, evaluations were done without considering the computer network component. We're simply looking at the physical security side of it. You know, when it comes to these discussions that we've had in the past around IoT, or as you refer to them quite frequently, the Internet of Insecure Things, you know, the security part is is often an afterthought because, you know, shipping product, especially if it's a new bobble or, or something, you know, some novel thing that you're putting out there, uh, security doesn't necessarily come into the the foreground when it comes to developing and, and then shipping, shipping that product. In this case, you know, this was a security product. It was a bespoke security product. And I think that we can, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you mentioned you can kind of excuse maybe the, the phone home Barbie from not having as much security as it should have. But, you know, we can have these different tiers and d- different accountabilities, I think, for the products that are IoT enabled to have, you know, different varying levels of security from the beginning. Yeah, well, and, and that's, I mean, there's all kinds of varying degrees of this. And I, I, I think you you know, you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, some of these things we we don't necessarily expect to be secure, although there's lots of unexpected side effects sometimes. Uh, I have some allegedly smart light bulbs that I've been testing, and uh, I had a network outage because of a, a bad cable in my in my WAN connection to my firewall. And when I got knocked off the network, I couldn't turn the light bulb on because the light bulb actually relies on the cloud in order to turn on and off. Um, so I guess they're a little denial of service there like the Ukrainians experienced inadvertently. Lastly, was going to discuss the PlayStation 4 jailbreak just briefly because I find it interesting. Uh, I, you know, the good news is uh, folks figured out how to run Linux on the PlayStation 4. Uh, Sony seemingly hasn't sued them or, or caused any fuss about it yet because obviously the, uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it looks to the intention of the jailbreakers in this case is simply to um, use their PlayStation 4s for other things, run servers on them, potentially maybe cluster them, do interesting projects and use them as uh, more general purpose computing hardware. And they are really cool, powerful uh, devices Obviously, if you can run those games and render that many polygons and all that kind of stuff, that power can be used for many different things. So that's kind of cool. But, uh, you know, you have broken back, you know, off the the chains again. And I I think the the concerns are, you know, don't proceed to do this if you're really a gamer, right? This is more for, I think, research and scientists and people that want to want to cheap server, I guess, right? Yeah, it's, you know, we, we've we again had this debate once or twice before, and I think we fall on both sides, right? The reason that some of these security measures are put in place and some of these controls are put in place that prevent you from doing certain things are to make the device uh, stronger and, and more secure. But at the same time, you know, if you're purchasing a device, then it's yours to do with it what you like. And as you said, some of these devices do have other uses that, uh, you know, that are unintended by the manufacturer, but can have benefits to, uh, you know, to the people that are using them. And and even society, if you're doing some, some research where you need a lot of cheap uh, power to be able to, to crunch through some some algorithms, then these devices do seem to fit the bill. Yeah, I'm okay with the idea that, that this is possible. Um, at the same time, you know, I think 
we have to be, or the person who's doing the jailbreaking needs to understand you know, what they're doing and, and what it's going to be used for. Um, I think, you know, Sony's big concern is, is this going to lead to the piracy of games? And it seems like in, in this case, and I believe in the last last time it happened, that that wasn't the case, uh, that it did not lead to piracy and that they have not made that uh, you know, available, but there's that possibility as, as Sony has raised that specter before. And, and then that raises other discussions that uh, I don't think we're going to get into at this point. Well, a, a little bit, right? I mean, with great power comes great responsibility, as they say. And, uh, you know, breaking off the security shackles on the PlayStation certainly gives you the ability to do some really cool things. But it also means, as you say, uh, not only could it be used for piracy, but I look at it again from like a malware perspective and I go, well, these devices are highly connected. They're Wi-Fi enabled. They're on gigabit networks. Uh, people are connecting them to fiber connections at their homes. And as we see with uh, other operating systems or other platforms, piracy often comes with malware. Somebody somewhere is going to try to profit from the fact that you want to steal a, a copy of a game. And if piracy does come along with this, uh, once you've broken those security shackles off of your PlayStation so that you can play stolen games, those stolen games may have other unintended uh, side effects or consequences uh, from maybe stealing your PlayStation ID all the way to, you know, being a DDoS bot or uh, similar to the Internet of Things discussion, right? This is now a smart device that's on your network with your other computers and it can sniff your network traffic. It can man in the middle of your traffic. It could do all kinds of things. Those of us that understand what these things are, just like jailbreaking an iPhone or rooting an Android, can do really cool stuff with our devices if we're careful and we understand the risks, but we probably shouldn't do it at work. And we probably um, shouldn't make it too easy for people that don't understand the risks to necessarily do it so that we don't invite people into uh, getting in a little bit over their heads. Yeah, can't add anything more than that. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention was we've got a uh, a video we just released promoting our Sofas Home product, which we we talk about here on the podcast the last few weeks. Um, Sofas Home, of course, is our free version of Sofas Antivirus for people to use at home. In addition to providing antivirus, it can help you know provide some web filtering to uh, to keep the the kids out of trouble online and keep you away from phishing sites if you're tricked into clicking a link in that email, that type of thing. And we've got a great promotional video uh, that I invite you to check out. I think it's pretty cool, and if you'd like. Like to see it as well, you can go to bit.ly slash Sophos Kids, and uh, that'll take you to the YouTube video, so you can check that out. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, lots of our staff, including John and I, will all be at the RSA conference at the end of February, so we know uh, many of you internationally are able to, to transit all the way around the world to San Francisco to join us for that, and if you're able, please stop by and, in fact, let us know ahead of time. Perhaps we can uh, meet up and, uh, you know, have a, a cup of coffee or a beer or uh, whatever may be appropriate, so... So uh, we really look forward to seeing all of you there. And on that note, I'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 226. As always, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes uh, via RSS feed or over at soundcloud.com slash Sofa Security. And all the latest security news is over at nakedsecurity.sofos.com. Until next time, stay secure.